number two in the world on GPI. I was like, I thought I was the best player in the world. And I was like, this is just like continuation of like my life story. Like, I'm just going to like win. And that's like what's going to happen. And then I had like the worst like downswing of my life. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, just started not doing well in tournaments. And then you start chasing, like you start putting up more money to like try to win it all back or whatever. Like you get anchored to your like high net worth number or whatever and in a way that's like really destructive because you're always just trying to get back to that high watermark instead of just like being like okay what's the situation i'm at today probably some lesson there for founders like if you raise it a big valuation like don't anchor on that valuation like think about like what's the reality of my business i think the idea of why people get so obsessed with building a brand early is like they think it'll help them with sourcing which i understand like that's like the logic of it Uh, but like ultimately the brand you have is gonna be your reputation with founders right like, I would say a lot of the VC firms I admired the most, like Benchmark, Pace, Thrive, IA, like some of these like other firms, like they don't even have anything on their website. A couple of them have like links to their portfolio companies. Like here's like a Twitter list of all our portfolio companies. And I think, but like they have obviously amazing reputation with founders. And it's like high level, people want to work with these companies or with, with these venture funds and these people. And I think it's like your reputation is ultimately like, how do you show up when you're meeting with founders or working with founders? And that that shows up over the long run. So like all the shouting on Twitter can be helpful for sourcing maybe, but like ultimately it doesn't really matter. It's not going to actually like uh, help you like meet the next great founder in five years, 10 years. Welcome back to season four of the Generation Hustle Pods VC series. On the show today, we have Pratush Padiga, Senior Associate at Sousa Ventures an early stage fund who has invested in the likes of Flexport, Robinhood, and Expanse, to name a few. He has had quite the journey before getting into the game of investing. Once ranked second in the world in professional poker, he has played against the likes of Phil Ivey, Daniel Negreanu, and more. After a strong run, he started noticing disturbing trends related to his health, his finances, and more, and eventually came to the decision to leave poker altogether. Regaining control of his well-being and developing a keen interest in tech, he was able to land a startup role at Volley as chief of staff. Using this experience and his strong understanding of risk to reward, he eventually catapulted into a career of VC. We also talk about how to assess risk, how to rebound when facing adversity, and the recent bank collapses in the US. So let's jump right in. So season four continues of our VC series, and today we have a very special guest, a former professional poker player, a individual who's worked at an early stage startup and now is a senior associate at Sousa Ventures. Pratush, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Doing good. So I'd love to kind of hear your story and your background first, who Pratush is, um, and kind of, I guess, why a career in tech? Uh, sure. Definitely not something I projected when I was a kid, but... Uh... Actually, in a way, I was probably trying to run away from shit. So uh, I was born in New Zealand uh, in 1989. We moved to the U.S. when I was five. Actually, my dad did come out to Silicon Valley at first. We were in Cupertino for a couple of years. Um, I mean, I don't really remember too much. Didn't know anything about what my dad did. But I was like, okay, cool. We're in California now. Uh, We moved to Colorado when I was seven. Uh, I grew up there. spent most of my childhood there. I would consider that still home. 
Uh, I mean, as a kid, I was just like obsessed with competition. So I would do spelling bees, geography bees, anything you could basically get your hands on that was maybe non-athletic, but <laughs> more academic. And yeah, that was like, that probably defined most of my childhood was just trying to compete in these various things. You know, I won the national spelling bee, I won a geography bee competition in high school as well. Um, and then, you know, like everyone just, you know, thought, okay, I'm going to go to college. And that was kind of, you know, the end of that like right. saga of my life, like it's time to go get a job. Um, and I thought I would be like maybe a banker or a management consultant. Like had a brief dabble with biomedical engineering when I first got to Duke, but then eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to go into econ finance. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That kind of was the heyday of that. Um, went to New York for a semester exchange program. I was like, wait, I don't want to be a banker at all <laughs> or a management consultant. It's terrible. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I was playing a lot of poker at the time. It, it was going pretty well. And, you know, a year later when I graduated, I was like, hey, let's give this a shot. So I ended up playing poker professionally for six years, uh, was ranked number two in the world for tournaments at one point. Um, you know, kind of had a lot of ups and downs in poker, which I've written about. Maybe yeah. we can get into it at some point. Um, but I mean, overall, like it was like it was kind of recapturing that love for competition that I like. That was what probably the part of poker I liked the most, like even more than like I was never like. I was never like a gambler. Like I didn't like to play blackjack or anything. Like I just go in a casino to play poker because I love the mm -hmm. strategy game and the competition Got aspect it. of it. Um, but yeah, uh, ended up kind of like retiring, whatever you want to call it, from poker. Didn't really know what I wanted to do next, and got into crypto first on the trading side. Um, but eventually went to build like a crypto gaming startup out in Singapore, and that's probably what was my first like you know first like experience or wake up call into tech i would say mm -hmm. you know like mm -hmm. I, I mean i you know i ordered ubers and stuff like that but i didn't know anything about any startups right at right, all right, right. in 2016 yeah, yeah, or 2017 yeah. um so you know uh the crypto gaming startup failed but i was like startups are cool i was reading you know zero one telegram blogs like, this is really cool i want to get more involved in the industry um kind of you know got lucky to get a job at volley which is a company that was in yc and then you know uh had just like was just about to raise the series a i joined as the uh, chief of staff helping out the ceo there worked there for a year and then got went over to susa and now work on mm -hmm. the venture side yeah i know it's been a definitely been a wild ride for you i guess you have a very unique experience and that's kind of common kind of thread i guess amongst vcs uh traditionally like you know the idea is that most vcs have this ib background i mean yeah. a lot of them still do but i think what i've found in some, doing some of these interviews is like a lot of them don't have a traditional background. They come from like various walks of life. Um, and that kind of diverse perspective and thought process really kind of gives you what I say, like alpha in terms of, I yeah. guess. You I know, mean, if you're looking for outlier companies and outlier founders, like it helps to be a little bit different yourself because mm, otherwise you're yeah. just looking for cookie cutter, right? Like, and I would say that's probably the critique or, you know, of the, the iBanker management consultant who goes into VC, which... I don't think that's always true. Like I've I met a lot of bankers who are great VCs as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The whole goal of uh, VC is to kind of not have a homogenous approach, I guess, yeah, to anything, exactly. right? So yeah. that's that's yeah. important. And so uh, I'd love to actually double down on the this uh, thought that you're really fascinated about competition specifically. Yeah. So like what, why, why does that kind of draw you in? And like what about competition specifically kind of like keeps on, you know, you want to kind of pursue it? I know most people just kind of get like, I guess, intimidated sometimes uh, in a way, but 
I haven't seen many people drawn towards it. It's almost like you have like this Mamba mentality, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kobe and Jordan, all of those were idols of mine growing up, um, particularly Michael Jordan when I was a, a kid. And I think I was never very athletic or anything like that. So like academics and, you know, eventually poker, mental competition was like where I could like sort of, mm. you know, <laughs> take that, uh, like get that uh, muscle uh, scratched or or you work that muscle, I guess, or get that itch scratched is probably the right way of phrasing that. Um, I I don't know. I think I've always been that way. And like, maybe that's just like, it sounds cliche, but I feel like from as long as I can remember, it would be like, we would have an around the world competition where it's like, you know, you have to go compete on like, who can say their multiplication table okay. the fastest yeah, yeah, yeah. in like the second grade. And I'd be like, if I, I mean, I would like basically never lose, but if I lost, I'd be like very, very upset, you know? And okay. Like, like okay. the point of like, you know, it was like, I had to win. I hate losing. It's all about winning for me. So I think that has just, I think it's more innate more than anything else. And I think getting a taste of winning keeps it going, right? Like you mm. feel like, oh, I, I want you kind of like hunger for that again. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I feel like you either have it sometimes or you don't. Uh, yeah, I don't know if yeah. you can develop that trait. Maybe you yeah. can. I don't know. But, I don't uh, think competitiveness. I think it's just like a trait that you have, right. or you don't. Like, there's other things you can develop, but like that desire, or like obsession with winning, is it's. I think it's hard to teach. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, I actually really wanted to dive into this topic around your professional poker playing career. Sure. So playing on these kind of high stakes uh, tables with mm -hmm. such like good players who are just as skilled as you. How do you kind of go about understanding, I guess, their game, uh, their strategy? Like, how do you read that individual? That's something I've always been fascinated about. I get the mathematical component. Obviously, there's a certain amount of cards, yeah. and this is maybe the logic behind it. But also understanding that this individual likes to bluff here, there, or this yeah. is kind of how he throws someone off. Yeah. How did you approach that whole strategy behind the game? Yeah, I mean, I think the the classic things are just like, you know, when you see someone turn over a hand, you're able to sort of like figure out like, okay, what does that mean in terms of their tendencies, right? And you're always looking for surprises or things that were anomalous from what you're like understanding those. But like, honestly, every time you sit down at a poker table for the first time with someone, you're trying to like, based on the way they dress, how they like talk, what they're like, even maybe what they're eating, like all this kind of stuff. You like all this goes into like, you're like, okay, this is my mental model for how this type of person will play poker. Like, mm -hmm. they're probably going to play too, t like, they're going to be tight here. They're going to, like, do this, et cetera, et cetera. And then you continue, like, it's like uh, like this big block or something. And then they're, like, you're, like, constantly, like, chipping away different aspects as you get more information. So then you, like, have a clearer picture or, like, a sculpture of, like, what they actually play like or what they look like. So... I mean, if, if someone you've seen on TV, like an Ivy or Negron, you maybe have like a, you have a stronger understanding of like what their basic gameplay yeah. is like. And then you're still adjusting like around the um, edges and corners as you like learn more information. So I think like that's the general idea is like you have like a baseline assumption and you like slowly start like cultivating that as you get more and more information mm. over time. And honestly, I feel like that's what I kind of do with founders as well. Like the first time you meet a founder, yeah. you kind of have to like, have like a baseline okay what do i think this person is like but you you know you do as you get more information you kind of develop it over time yeah and maybe here's an open question for you do you think like studying psychology uh maybe a useful skill set especially in a world where we are shifting towards 
I say an- intangible skills being a very strong driver. Communications, yeah. obviously, AI is kind of dominating the news right nowadays. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if you need to like go and get a degree, but I think it's yeah. useful to get like understand cognitive biases or like understand people's like personalities and like that kind of thing is like, I think usually people's, um, what's the way of phrasing this? It's people's core of their being will be expressed through the way they either play poker or like mm. how they run a company, et cetera. Like eventually space, cause like, especially in the hard times, like you can learn a lot of lessons and things like that, but like ultimately like who you are fundamentally will shine through in those big moments or those crucible moments, right? Like if you're fundamentally a more passive, nervous person, like even if you've like played aggressively cause you've like been told on a poker video that you're supposed to play aggressive, like in a really big hand or a really big moment where like everything's on the line, like your instinct or intuition will be to be more passive or like to be like, oh, I'll wait for a better spot or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right? okay. So Got like it. you like understanding what who what the core of someone's being is is like really mm. valuable. So I think yeah. yeah, I think psychology and you know that kind of stuff is really useful. But like you probably just need to get like the big ideas. Yeah, the basic like, foundational stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Got it. And so if you were to kind of go back into your whole professional career, yeah, uh, maybe name one moment uh, that still stands out to you and that you vividly remember and like, why does it resonate with you? Uh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I mean, so probably the, like the biggest mistake I made in terms of financially in a big hand or, or whatever. Uh, so there's, I think seven left in the super high roller bowl, which is like the biggest tournament of the year, $300,000 buy-in, $6 million to first, first, uh, wow, yeah. I'm one of seven. So I'm, I'm chip leading the tournament with seven left. Uh, Jake, uh, someone opens onto the gun. I forget who. Um, and then Jake Schindler, who is second in chips actually calls on the button. I I'm in the big blind with pocket aces. I raise big, obviously, because, you know, I'm yeah. the best hand. Uh, Jake calls. The flop comes queen eight seven with two hearts. I don't have the ace of hearts. Uh, and sorry, I'm like, re- I realized this is like the first time I've retold a hand in like a long time. Even though I'm okay, poker, okay. you're like literally yeah, 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 yeah. you're like doing this all the time. But yeah, I'm like, wow, this feels like the old, the old days. Um, <laughs> and I don't know what it was about it, but like literally like Emil as the flop came, I like knew I was beat and I, I don't even know how to describe it. And like, I think the rational logical side of your brain will be like, there's no reason to think this, like he could have ace queen, he could have pocket jacks, he could have pocket tens. Like I could still have the best hand for sure. Mm. Um, but like somehow in my gut, I like just knew he had pocket eights or pocket sevens. And like, there's no logical reason, but like, I think there are sometimes like your gut over develops over time because there's like subtle things it's picking up on through like thousands and thousands of micro interactions that yeah. like make it just like know something or like feel something and maybe it's like the way he called pre-flop to the first raise and then called on the pre-flop to the second when i re-raised like oh that probably is like just like a hand that's like oh like he didn't really think about re-raising he didn't really think about like should i really call versus the chip leader with this etc like there's like things like subtle things that like you don't maybe can't process in the moment but your gut just like intuitively knows it okay Um, so anyway i ended up check calling three streets all in like i check all the flop check all the turn and the flush drop missed on the river he went all in i mean logically there's enough combinations of hands i beat 
that like I should mm-hmm. call here with pocket aces, yeah. the best hand, like uh, the best hand pre flop or whatever. Um, but it was just like something in me knew that I should have folded, and I ended up calling. I lost uh, oh. the hand. Um, he had pocket eights, and I ended up getting sick in the tournament. I think for like a million. Uh, and it's it's one of those interesting hands that I mean, it still sticks out like six years later, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, because it's one of those things where like I think reason and logic is really valuable, and you want to build mm. fundamentals of your strategy and your like approach to life in around like what's logical, what's rational, et cetera. But I think sometimes like there's these moments that are like kind of like beyond reason and trusting your intuition gut is like really valuable, especially if you're like an expert or very experienced in it, right? Like, so I think for, I mean, to draw maybe a weird analogy, like I don't think my like gut intuition about a founder, the first time I started meeting founders mm-hmm. two years ago is like, yeah. And I would say it's probably still like a developing skill, right? Like you don't know what, I still don't know what world class is totally yet, right? Like right. I would say yeah, my, yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah. getting in the reps now, but like it's still a developed skill. Whereas like someone like Peter Fenton or Bill Gurley who've been like meeting founders for like 30 years or something, right? Like they, they there's probably something that's like much more like honed there in terms of like hmm. gut intuition. Do I think this person is special? Got it. Um, yeah, yeah. And so... Yeah, I think that moment really like and it's the one I think about late, like still six years later is that the power of intuition, I think, is underrated by like rational, quote unquote, smart people because they're like they want to have something that's more like quantitative. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is what the numbers say. This is what the business model does. But like ultimately, like especially at the seed stage or very early stages, you're just like, does this person have what it takes? Yeah, like, like what you're yeah, trying yeah, to figure yeah. out. And like, you know, so. Yeah, because even if the business model is great, the product's great or whatever, like the person's always going to build a company. So yeah. I think that's like the lesson from that hand that I still like carry with me. No, that, I think that's powerful. I, I love uh, how you rounded it off in terms of talking about your um, current role uh, as a VC. Uh, one thing I always talk about at, at an early stage, you don't really have a set defined product market fit or, you know, that coin terminology that most people yeah. refer to. Yeah. Um, the product is likely going to evolve or pivot over time. But I, I want to see how that founder can execute on that roadmap towards yeah. success. And yeah, so, like how flexible point, are they? Do they yeah. have the guts, the the wherewithal? I mean, the famous Elon Musk quote about like startups are like chewing glass. It's like, can you like chew glass and like it? You know, yeah. like that's like a, the question you got to wonder about founders. I'm like, there's also the questions like you ask and things like that but like ultimately it is a gut intuition because like people can come up with good answers to questions that don't really like show what the you know what they really like under pressure yeah for sure and then in this uh in the world of poker there's this term called expected value so ev um and like kind of following up on uh, what you just said uh versus logic versus rationality yeah like how does that play into some of kind of the real life decision making that you're making today I know you talked about the intuition in terms yeah. of the founders and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, how's that evolved over time as well for you? Yeah. I mean, so the concept of EV is just like, in the long run, do I make money by making this decision, right? It's like kind of mm. like the magnitude of the pot you win plus the probability you win minus the magnitude of the pot you lose minus probability. Or Got plus, it. Yeah. you know, times the probability of the, the, the pot. Um, and 
so like, I don't know, like if you get in Queens versus Ace King, you win 57% of the time. So, you know, like, well, what's your odds there? Like in a specific hand. Um, and like poker players use this like framework, like, okay, in the long run, am I going to make money by doing this? Or is this like, is, I mean, you can use that. You can extend it to all sorts of friends. Like if I get married to this person, is it like plus EV from my life? Like in the long yeah. run, is my life to be better off? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. In, uh, in mind. I think the interesting thing about investing is that um, the magnitude, especially in, in business, especially in something like venture, it's like the magnitude is massive. So even though the probability mm. is low, like you can hit like a massive, massive home. Yeah. Right? Like you can yeah, put yeah. like $2 million into a company and literally return like, you know, a billion dollars. I mean, yeah, maybe, I'm thinking like Uber is what like classic. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's like, so you can hit a home runs, but it's not just like a four run home run. It's a thousand run home run, like Bezos says, you know? Um, and so I think like it's harder to like do the magnitude calculation times probability in like a like power law game like venture because mm -hmm. you don't know how big the outcome can get. Like you can kind of like directionally get there, but like in a poker hand, it's like very easy to calculate, like, okay, yeah. what's the probability of like I'm gonna win times what's the pot size, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in business it's like a lot more uncertain but i think that framework is still useful in terms of like just thinking about like positive expected value but like yeah it's 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 a little different i guess in some ways got it all right so uh, let's actually move on to another topic so I, sure. I was going through some of your Substack and reading uh, a blog uh and one thing that stood out was your past and kind of how you got here today uh eventually finding this path and finding god uh which i mm -hmm. found really interesting and uh, you being open enough to share that. I, I wanted to read one quote. Um, and so it says, I found myself at a crossroads, depressed, overweight, nearly broke, and alone. I went to the Bellagio Five Diamond Tournament in Las Vegas, having torched 90% of my wealth yeah. for my peak network in less than a year. So describe to us like what that time was for you and how it felt. And how did you kind of overcome that? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting uh, thing to think back on. I haven't read that read that piece in a while. Uh, I mean, it was it was fascinating in the sense of like the start of that year, February 2015. I was like at my peak, like peak ranking in the world, like poker. I was like, number two in the world on GPI. I was like, I thought I was the best player in the world, and I was like, this is just like continuation of like my life story. Like I'm just gonna like win. And that's like what's gonna happen. And then I had like the worst like downswing of my life. Like I, mm -hmm. you know, just started not doing well in tournaments. And then you start chasing, like you start putting up more money to like try to win it all back or whatever. Like you yeah, get anchored yeah, 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 to yeah, your yeah. like high net worth number or whatever. And in a way that's like very destructive because you're always just trying to get back to that high watermark instead of just like being like, okay, what's the situation I'm at today? Probably some lesson there for founders. Like, if you raise it a big valuation, like, don't anchor on that valuation. Like, think about like what's the reality of my business today or reality of my yeah. situation today. Um, whereas, like, I was just like chasing, chasing. I have to get back to that number, and like, I ended up losing a lot of that money. And it was like, I mean, the lifestyle of poker is not healthy in general, but it's easy. It's easier to like if you're not in a good spot to be just like <laughs> drinking a lot, eating a yeah. lot of garbage. You know. Um, it was pretty brutal. The interesting thing, and I guess it has some relevance to like finding God later, is like that 
I was able to climb out of that first big sort of like depressive mm -hmm. failure point of my life through a combination of stuff that a lot of people in the Valley love, which is like meditation, yeah. listening to Tim Ferriss podcast, Naval, Ravikant, all that, like the classic startup pink boy stuff um like i was doing all of that um, okay this was, yeah yeah this is like pre-startups but you know and it was like useful in the sense like it kind of got me out of it and i started doing well in poker again so like that was probably a big part of it as well it's kind of like only a few years later when i went through another big you know mm. financial uh you know just financial destruction of wealth i guess whatever you want to call it um Slash like other things going wrong in my life that I realized there was that you need more than some of these like I would say some of the more band aid type stuff where like you're like going through you're trying to do stoicism and be like oh it's not all that bad but you're like wait yeah. it's really bad yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and like uh, yeah so it was I I got out of it through classic uh, Silicon Valley stuff but eventually realized that I needed more and that's when I ended up finding God a few years later. Yeah, and we'll get to the point on God because I, I I'd love to kind of get a reflection on that and kind of what it yeah. means to you today. Um, but I I also love to touch top, uh, base on this like there's these new forms of enlightenment that seem to pop up um, all over the place, and yeah. I guess breeding ground for it is usually like you know Silicon Valley is yeah. a place where you find all these new, little new trends that yeah. hey yeah. do this for your mental do this and that whatever. So in a world where there's so much messaging on what to do, yeah. uh, how can one better manage or suppress the noise and find something that's actually beneficial for them? Yeah, I mean, I think to me, something that's test been tried and true and stood the test of time tends to be more valuable or like I found it more valuable. Um, and like yeah there's a lot of new age or new forms of enlightenment that people will tell you or like resolve like all your issues and i don't think like all your issues are gonna be resolved by like any form of enlightenment or like religion or anything like that it's more like a journey and what is like that faith what kind of like bedrock does faith give you or whatever it happens to be so um to me i just found that the other stuff was more like a band-aid and it didn't really mm -hmm help in the moments that like it was like i could wake up and do my like hour-long quiet time and my meditation and all my like cold showers and all of that when i was like in a good mental space but then when i was not in a good mental space all that stuff just like went to the wayside and i just like went back to like all the destructive habits i had before whereas like with faith it felt like it feels like a lot more grounded because you're like almost like in i don't know in a bigger story is the right way of thinking about it but it's more like you have something stronger to hold on to than mm. like i need to do this for my self-improvement like oh cold showers are gonna do like xyz for my like testosterone and like my health or something it's like no like spending time with god or praying with god is like a chance to be with the creator of the universe like you know like there's like yeah there's yeah, like yeah, a, yeah there's a more eternal sort of like groundedness that it gives you versus something that can even if it helps, it sort of feels like it's almost like self-improvement versus like something like the deeper than that. Yeah, no, I often kind of go back to this idea of religion just having such a powerful set of beliefs and kind of structure yeah. to your life, right? And that you kind of take that structure and immediately kind of resonate with that and yeah. apply it to the rest of your life. So, you know, all the negatives that are out there, you kind of reflect back, oh, like, you know, my reflection of God says, don't do this or do that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it does pro provide a very powerful kind of compelling way to yeah. control yourself. I think that's why a lot of people are interested in these old like traditions and intellectual um, ideas. But I think it to come to faith, it requires more than just like reading the books. It requires like, I mean, it requires faith, but also requires yeah. like community, going to church or, you know, things like that. So. Yeah. So uh, let's move along and get to the present. You're a senior associate at SUSE. Yeah. So one, I'd love to understand why SUSE. I think high level, I'm a very curious person. I'm very competitive. I love learning. I have good decision-making and risk framework skills, I think. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> torching my well my net worth 90%, we can maybe question the last one a little bit, but I feel like in general, I make, I, 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 good I have good frameworks around decision-making. Um, and so like all these skills are really valuable in venture, but they're obviously valuable in other aspects too, right? I think on the SUSE side, I really love learning and I think surrounding yourself with people who you feel like you can learn from is valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and like I'd gotten to know Leo over the course of like a year before I actually joined the firm. And Got you're it. just like a really like you, you always made time for me. He was like really thoughtful of mentorship. And like, I think that focus versus I think a lot of more juniors VC roles are about just like sourcing or yeah. Like yeah. do work for me as the general partner, but like Susa was like very much like, hey, we want to teach you how to be a good investor or a great investor, and like the mentorship aspect was the part that really stood out. Got it. And I think that's so important. I, uh, one of the things that I, I guess most individuals don't understand about some VCs are like yeah. some of the roles are like basically a glorified sales role. Um, yeah. So yeah. you do you do want to get into a air uh, kind of a role where you do have mentorship, you do have a yeah. kind of a design, a roadmap for success. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just becomes this sexy industry that everyone wants to get into and they're yeah. influenced by peers. And then they eventually like, Ooh, I hate this shit. Uh, yeah, because I'm I think just doing one thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people end up hating venture actually that do it. Like you see a lot of people wash out of the industry. I mean, it, it's hard. It's competitive. Like it's not easy, especially as a junior person, like of, you know, some founders don't want to talk to you because you're junior, you're not a partner, you know, and, or like, it's hard to get really differentiated deal flow, you know, in a lot of ways, right? Like, um, but it, if you like it, it's like, I think it's the best job in the world, which yeah. like, that's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. And so you being early in your career now within the world of VC, let's think of it uh, in terms of a long-term scope of how you can actually define yeah. sec success for yourself. Yeah. So outside the obvious returns, which yeah. makes sense, right? Yeah. How would you define success in the long-term for you as a VC? I think if you'd asked me this question five years ago, the answer would be like, I have to be number one on the Midas list. Like, okay. that's, that's my mindset, right? Like that's mm. the poker mindset, my spelling me mindset, et cetera, et cetera. I think becoming a Christian has sort of like changed that framework where it's like those things don't really matter. Like, I mean, who knows how they're even calculated, you know, <laughs> like there's, all, yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah, of aspects yeah, yeah. like that. But I think the, the more important thing or like the reason I got into venture was to like really serve founders. So I think to me, success would be like partnering with founders that build like enduring companies that actually like shape the world in a new way and like make it much better um that sounds like a little bit cliche so like maybe the more like uh <laughs> interesting way of framing it is like i kind of feel like it's a, like a way of like 
creating the kingdom of heaven down on earth? Mm. Like what are companies that are like actually helping people and make like the world better, like more like heaven than it is now? Um, that's what would be success for me, like partnering with founders who are building those types of companies. And like, ideally, like I, I want to work with, with the enduring companies, like no pump and dump specs, none of this, like, yeah, 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 yeah. like it's like, to me, success is not like, oh, we exited the IPO and like delivered a bunch of cool returns to our LPs. And then like yeah. the stock went down 90% over the next year. It's like, yeah, in 25 years, we're still like, I'm happy to still be an investor in the company, you know? Yeah, no, I think that's a very powerful kind of take. And what would your advice be for, I guess, other VCs or early career VCs who are often conflating the idea of success with a brand? Uh, of course, you have to build a brand. I understand that's a part of the game. Yeah. But like, how do you kind of like, I know a lot of VCs that don't care about the brand and are very successful and they yeah. seem very happy. But I think the immediate individual that gets into this industry or just going on Twitter, like to have like 100,000 followers on Twitter. Yeah. I have this following on LinkedIn. So how, what would the kind of advice be for them? Yeah, I think the idea of why people get so obsessed with building a brand early is like they think it'll help them with sourcing, which I understand like that's yeah. like the logic of it. Uh, but like ultimately the brand you have is going to be your reputation with founders, right? Like I would say a lot of the VC firms I admire the most like Benchmark, Pace, Thrive, IA, like some of these like other firms, like they don't even have anything on their website. Like they, yeah, they it's just a landing page. Benchmark like, is just a landing like, page. It's just a landing page and like a couple of them have like links to their portfolio companies. Like here's like a Twitter list of all our portfolio companies. And I think, but like they have obviously amazing reputation with founders. And it's like, that's because like your brand ultimately is like, what is your reputation? Well, I don't know about Benchmark's reputation with founders. Like that could, you could debate that because of Uber, but um, like high level, people want to work with these companies or with, with these venture funds and these people. And I think it's like your reputation is ultimately like, how do you show up when you're meeting with founders or working with founders? And that, that shows up over the long run. So like all the shouting on Twitter can be helpful for sourcing maybe, but like ultimately it doesn't really matter. It's not going to actually like, uh, help you like meet the next great founder in five years, 10 years. Like, and I think that's why a lot of this, the Twitter I, I say this as someone who uses Twitter a lot, but I think a lot of the people overemphasis on like brand early mm -hmm. is like, it will, you might be focusing on the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. Your job is to really build relationships, not yeah. to kind of promote your self image uh, yeah, per exactly. se. Exactly. So I, I think that's important. And yeah, I almost kind of go to the analogy, like you refer to as a, um, like the credibility of a, a PC firm. So yeah. Kyle Harrison from Contrary, he yeah. he uh, had this uh, recent quote uh, one in one of his articles talking about how great VC firms are almost like sports teams where, yeah. you know, they have this strong brand. But I guess the fans get attached to that kind of team and there's yeah. a resonation to that individual that kind of stays through time. Like there's generations that follow the same team. Um, yeah. And I guess you can kind of apply that same logic. But that's kind of built on trust and relationship of the organization and how they treat the fans and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So in a sense that to your point, these VC firms that are outliers um, in terms of performance, they generally have a huge amount of credibility and they don't really care about so-called brand uh, per yeah. se. Yeah, totally. Like I think for like, like if a really hot, exciting, whatever company is coming out and they're deciding between 
you know, the top ones for who's going to lead their round. Like ultimately it's not about like who has a cool website or who has like, uh, you know, fancy pieces published. It's like, if I call up the founders who work with this partner, what will they say about you? <laughs> so there's obviously been this fascination with a couple of years ago with NFTs and all that, but that hype's kind of all drowned out a little bit. Yeah. So uh, what's next uh, in the world of Web3? Um, I guess like Web3 itself is like an interesting framing <laughs> because uh, like I, I think I had a tweet about this a couple of years ago, like they just like everyone was just so excited about Web3 and it used to be called crypto, right? And I think there was like yeah. a previous like hype cycle like six or seven years ago, which was like, blockchain not bitcoin right like people were like oh we need to build yeah. permission blockchain for like managed supply chains or something like that. um i think there are valuable interesting applications of web3 stuff but i'm probably less interested in that than like actual just like the financial side like decentralized okay. permissionless finance stuff so like to me like bitcoin and ethereum are still like just fundamentally interesting it's just like you know, competing for money or like mm. money that's outside the control of the state. Um, like, I think as we continue to see increasing surveillance and like control of like financial infrastructure by the government, I think having options outside that is still fundamentally like really interesting to me. Yeah. Like, okay. And that's why like, I'm more interested in like public blockchains than anything else. So like, like you could like the Bitcoin answer is that like the only thing that matters is like digital gold and like having something outside. But like, you know, I think Ethereum has like an interesting counterpoint, which is like, okay, you need more than just money. Like you need to have financial infrastructure on top yeah, of whether just I like agree with that. Uh, yeah. transferring cash. Um, but yeah, like I, I think to me, that's a fundamentally the most interesting thing. Like, I think we will probably see like more control and new things like i think you could get banned from banking because like you said like the wrong thing on i mean i don't want to get like I, it's not like conspiracy theory thing i mean it's happened in canada yeah right? exactly so, like yeah, yeah exactly and like whether or not you agree with like the the protests or whatever but like flipping on the other side right like during the protests of 2020 like what if like there was like what if trump had been like okay we're just gonna like seize the bank account to like shut up their like financial infrastructure you know like I, I think like these things are like we've already seen sort of the playbook in China in a lot of places. Like I think having money and finance finance outside control of the state is like super important. So um, that's the stuff I'm like most interested in. So like okay. continue to monitor that stuff. Um, the, I guess the, the the question would be like how much of that is like VC backable? That I don't have like a great answer for. Um, Got it. But it, it's probably the area I'm like most interested in. And uh, what are your takes? Obviously, it's supposed to be deregulated, decentralized, all that. Yeah. But given some of the kind of recent fallouts of like FTX and all a bunch of other companies, um, where does regulation stand or sit, uh, in your opinion, when it comes to kind of making sure that this technology is still safe to use for uh, a larger uh, population when adoption grows? Yeah. Um I mean, I think regulation is important just so lives like a clear set of rules. But I think like the fundamental infrastructure like should still be like permissionless, right? Like, so I think it's fine if like Coinbase has to follow rules about KYC AML and like do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, like yeah. I, I like fundamentally like Bitcoin or Ethereum, like they should be accessible for anyone to use whether or not you like follow those rules. Got it. Okay, cool.
Uh, so let's escape the crypto world a little bit, uh, and then we'll talk about what happened two weeks ago, uh, specifically so, with our bank, uh, SVB. Yeah. Um, so I guess everyone kind of already knows the story as to why it happened. Yeah. I'd be interested in your opinion around the impact on the tech e ecosystem as a whole. Because we know SVB was leveraged by a lot of tech companies, venture capitalists, uh, and it was a very strong partner for the ecosystem. Yeah. So what's next? after this kind of debacle um, for tech as a whole? I mean, I think, I think Mike Moritz put it this way, which I think is correct. It's like, it's kind of like we lost our community bank. You know, it's like, it's someone like who like knew the ecosystem had decades of institutional knowledge built up and how to like serve founders. And I think, yes, we can probably find, you know, like help our companies transition to a JP Morgan account or like, things like that but i think the loss of like someone who understands like the difficulty of underwriting the startup success like you know like the the credit worthiness of these startups is like on the traditional scale is very low yeah but like low. you know <laughs> but like there's like things of understanding like who are their investors like what's like their like like likelihood of them raising money even though they're losing money right now you know like there there was like a lot of institutional knowledge there that like kind of sad to lose your like local bank and like i think like centralization into like just these few big banks that are too big to fail is like something that's like high level and not great for the country versus like having these more regional banks but i think for like tech itself like yeah it'll make things harder you know like i don't think there's like it's hard for like if you're like uh an indian founder from india to like get a u.s bank account you know oh, whereas yeah. like sub could like understand like oh you know it's backed by sequoia or, or like you know like i mean that's maybe an obvious one but like they're like able to like help startups so like mm. i think it net net hurts the startup ecosystem a lot I, I had a lot of like clients that you know had venture debt with them they're like yeah. the only reasons uh kind of why they're at the stage that they're at um because no other banks would even care like yeah. traditional banks, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, yeah, exactly. so yeah, it's a huge hit, and hopefully, you know, we're, we're we don't see any other fallouts, uh, yeah. <laughs> regional wise, because the stocks are still taking a hit. Yeah. Totally. Um, and so, a uh, question: Has technology made it easier or harder to advance human rights? Um, probably easier so far. Like hmm. you know, like. The organizations will probably communicate with each other easier, like, you know, especially in like countries like or like in places where human rights are like less um, valued than like the United States, for example. And like you could say even like things like, I mean, this is going to sound extreme, but like, even things like defense technology, et cetera, like helps like the U.S. present extend like globally where like probably lots of places might have like a worse record on human rights if they weren't like worried mm -hmm. about like the U.S. and things like that. Um, so I think in general, it's advanced it. I think probably probably there's like futures where it would like actually reduce it, like surveillance, et cetera, that like we could potentially see, but like so far I would say advanced. Got it. And where does AI sit in uh, to kind of this whole um, thing? More on the sense or front of uh, this idea of jobs and individuals not being able to guess uh, obtain the skill sets to kind of be leveled up in a world that's kind of controlled by AI. I, we're not at that point right now, yes. but I say, let's kind of like think about the future um, a little bit here. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. 
I mean, we'll we'll see what timeline it plays out on. Like, if it happens really fast, then the transition will be quite messy in terms of like you know if AI starts like doing a lot of like economic work instead mm-hmm. of humans, because then the transition like we won't really know how to adjust to that. I think if it happens on a much longer time scale, there like yes, people are going to get displaced. Like that happens with every like sort of technology, like. Um, you know, they, there's no one who's like still like professionals, like data entry person, right? Or a typist, like there's yeah, like, one yeah, can type, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, yeah, so, yeah, like things like that. Like there's always been replacement of jobs, but I think like if it like happens on a large scale quickly, yeah, the disruption would be quite large. I think the I'm still formulating my opinion on like whether it's going to be as disruptive like in terms of like total job displacement and like everyone just sits around collecting UBI checks or whatnot mm. i still i i'm still trying to figure out what i think about that um but i will say i do think humans are meant to like work and to create um and i think just like sitting around collecting checks for doing nothing is like deeply meaningless and would be yep. like would suck away the soul of like a lot of people and part of that's like a religious thing as well right like God worked, God created, he worked for six days. He then put man on earth to like, you know, tend the garden to like watch over. And he was like, Adam was working from the first day or like first day of his creation. So like, I think humans are meant to work, but I think are like meant to and create and like we get a lot of meaning out of that. Um, so if we were actually in a world where like humans couldn't do anything and like, even like art is like done better by AI. Or yeah, something. Like, it's yeah. like I don't know what like the mental state of humans would be at that mm. point. Um, so, so yeah, that yeah, I think that's no, a big question. <laughs> yeah, probably maybe not in our lifetime, but yeah, not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. So there's yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder like how much of like this idea of like AGI is like this desire for like sort of like this machine god that like you know like solves all of our problems <laughs> yeah 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 i don't know what it is but uh, hopefully the leaders have some type of you know escape button or something uh um hopefully we don't get to this idea of singularity and machines controlling or terminator kind of style stuff but who knows uh, we don't know that yet um cool man that's the bulk of the podcast one thing we always love uh, ending off with is uh, a quick lightning round sure so there's just four questions i'll give you a couple seconds to answer each one yeah sure sounds good okay uh, first one, toughest opponent you've played professionally in poker? Fedor Holtz. He has the best okay. like blend of strategy and like uh, ability to like deviate from uh, this correct strategy when you needed to. Cool. Uh, a company you're currently very excited about? Uh, Edia. So this is a company that we like backed. It's like I think fundamentally tutoring is the best way to learn. Bloom's Two Sigma problem showed that software can help scale tutoring, especially now with AI. So they help like do math tutoring right now. They've sold a bunch of school districts. I think they've okay. been growing really well. Uh, I think we can basically, one of the cool things about AI is like maybe we can like reinvent all of education. Mm. Right now. Like I feel right. like it's a really interesting opportunity and I think EDI is one of the companies that might do it. Okay, really cool. Uh, favorite place that you've traveled to? Uh, Seoul, Korea. I love oh, Korea. Nice. I love Korean food. I love Korean culture. Like it's an amazing place. Love Love that awesome. city. And then controversial question last. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? Uh, occasionally. <laughs> okay. I, okay. That's that's kind of a cop-out answer. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not opposed to pineapple on pizza, basically. Yeah. But like, it depends on, like, my favorite slice is pepperoni jalapeno. But actually, Darren, the friend I mentioned earlier, like, we used to, 
one of our go-to like pizza combinations was chicken, jalapeno, sun-dried tomato, and pineapple. And that oh, pizza okay. a great pizza. So okay, okay, no, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, yeah. So, Pratush, uh, thank you so much uh, for the experience. Any last words for the audience and maybe where uh, individuals can find you? Um, I mean, uh, you can check out my writing on Substack. Uh, wrote an article about my journey to faith, which I think is like. Yeah, I, I think if you're curious about any of that stuff or some of the things we talked about, that's like a great place to start. You can always reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, it's just Pratush Badiga or email Pratush at SusaVentures.com. Awesome. Thanks again for this.